Um, ben, uh, 0.05 is actually one in 2,000. Yes, that is correct. And uh, I'm going to correct my estimate of 0.05 to 0.02. So that Which it is now one in 5,000 again. Sounds fair. Okay. Good morning, and welcome to the latest episode of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from baseballprospectus.com. It is episode 236. Good cover. Good cover. Thank you. Nobody spotted that. <laughs> uh, I'm Sam Miller with Ben Lindbergh. And Ben, yesterday I was listening to my favorite sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, mm -hmm. and they were talking about the uh, Aaron Hernandez stuff. Uh-huh. Are you aware of Aaron Hernandez? Yeah, yeah, I've I've heard football football player. Heard a bit about it. Yes. Potential potential murderer. Yes. We'll, we'll find out. Yep. And uh, and I was thinking, my first thought was uh, was like how I sort of wish that I did a football podcast because I think it would be fun to talk about um, some of the the like really really crazy stuff that happens with football players, mm -hmm. but then I wasn't sure. So so I thought I would just quickly ask you if if a player if a baseball player of equivalent status of Aaron Hernandez and and I don't I don't know what his status is I, I don't either I'm gonna I, I I sort of sense that he's like uh I, something close to a star but maybe not like a household name so uh -huh. um maybe I'm just gonna throw I, I this might be way off but I'll just say like uh AJ Burnett maybe. okay like a a player who's like uh, kind of on the cusp right mm -hmm. uh if, if, if somebody like an A.J. Burnett were implicated in multiple murders, gangland-style murders, uh, how many episodes do you think we would dedicate to that? <laughs> uh, ever? Like over the life of his of his trial or, or whatever? The whole story uh, arc? Yeah, yeah. Uh, three? Three, yeah. I could see it being anywhere from zero to like nine <laughs> uh -huh. but th three seems reasonable i don't think we would shy away from it no i don't I, yeah I, don't, I also don't know what we would say about right, it. right i don't know that much about the particulars of the case and i don't know what there is to say uh about it i guess it would depend on a lot of things so yeah i don't know it doesn't seem like anybody who says anything about this case the angel of angel Aaron Hernandez case <laughs> seems to, it seems like most people come out of it having said something regrettable. That's uh, my impression. But mainly, okay. mainly that's because the only football stuff that I get exposed to is usually like meta commentary about people writing about football. Like I'm not going to, um, sports sites and reading the stories about mm -hmm. Aaron Hernandez. I'm much more likely to see the, 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 the responses to the stuff that gets said about it. Mm -hmm. So, I have I have a skewed view probably of what people are writing. I'm sure a lot of people have written greatly about it. I like your it, your Freudian slip of equating Angel Hernandez, Angel Hernandez. With, <laughs> with an accused murderer. <laughs> um, uh, we do you do you want to mention the the tweet the tweet that we got? Yes. Yes. We yes we talked about the what the pirate success should be credited to, and I uh, suggested that. It would ultimately uh, turn into a story about coaching and uh, giving credit to their coaches for turning their that, that bird is to, so loud. To, to crow, <laughs> to crow. Uh -huh. There's two. There's three of them there. Uh -huh. Oh, now now there's one of them, and there it goes. Last one is gone. Uh, all right, and so uh, we just got a, a helpful tweet from Hatch Burrito, yes. who let us know that in fact um, 
the uh, Pittsburgh Tribune, uh, just did write this article. Uh, it was published on Saturday, which is two days before we did our podcast. And it says uh, that uh, Ray Searage, the uh, Pirates pitching coach, is his choice for the Pirates' first half MVP. And it's, uh, it's an article about what an effect that Searage has had on the Pirates' pitching staff. Uh, and goes through all the players who have, uh, you know, overperformed this year and gives them credit. Uh, from Jean-Mar Gomez to Jason Grilly to Mark Melanson to Tony Watson to Jared Hughes to Charlie Morton to... That's it. <laughs> he had no effect on anybody else. Uh, I looked briefly just to see whether I could find an equivalent article about Searage from before the Pirates' successful season. Uh, and I did just quickly find one from March of 2011 that was basic. I mean, it basically said the same things about him and gave him the same sort of praise. Um, and at the time, I guess, so he's been in the Pirates organization for, this is his 11th season. This is his third full season as pitching coach and fourth as a member of the major league coaching staff, I think. Um, so he was originally pitching coach under John Russell. I think he was the interim pitching coach and then he expected to be replaced when hurdle was hired but wasn't which was kind of unusual that that hurdle would keep someone that he didn't hire um mm-hmm. and so that was used as sort of evidence of how legitimately good he is and how everyone in the organization says that he's wonderful um so i don't know maybe it's maybe it's not just a narrative but then again uh i guess you you need more than Searage. I mean, he's been on he's on he's been on bad Pirates teams. He's been the pitching coach for those. I don't know whether it's just a case of his influence needing some time to take effect, or or whatever it is, or whether it's just a, a convenient reason. But um, but you were right that, that that would get the credit, and I guess already had when you said that. Yes, I was right in describing what had happened in the past. <laughs> yes, those are the best kind of predictions when you can inadvertently predict something that already happened. Uh, and speaking of uh, predictions, we did a show a couple weeks ago about Albert Pujols, who was in a hot streak at the time, and uh, we read a quote from him that said that he was back to, to being the, the Pujols of the Cardinals days, basically, and that he felt better than he had at any time Um during last season, and I asked whether you thought that mattered or whether you gave it any more credence uh, or his hot streak any more credence because he said that, and I think you said not really, right? Um, and in the 10 games since then, he has hit 163. Uh, so He's back. The slightly, <laughs> the slightly not as old Albert Pujols is back. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, all right, so what do you want to talk about? Uh, analysts as GMs. Analysts as GMs, and yes. I want to talk about uh, predicting Hall of Famers. Uh-huh, okay. Uh, mine's just a little game. Mm, okay. So why don't we start with yours? Okay, uh, so this was inspired by some tweets, a long series of tweets by Chris Long yesterday. I think we've, we've mentioned him on the podcast recently. Yeah. Um, he is... He is the, the former head stat guy for the Padres. He's still a consultant for the Padres. He consults for teams in other sports. He's a he's a data analyst type. Uh, and he says 
kind of, I don't know, sort of a lot of polarizing things, I guess, uh, which he can do now that he's a consultant and not a full-time employee of a team. Um, and so yesterday he was tweeting some things about uh, how how analysts are, and he maybe defines analysts in a different way than most people would, but uh, how they have not really been promoted as much as they should have or have not really attained positions of, of authority that he thinks they deserve. Uh, so he, he initially tweeted, problem, uh, hyphen, getting sports teams to value analysts or value analysis and analysts more. Uh, and then Colin Wires responded and said, that seems like a problem for analysts who want to get paid mostly. And then Chris Long asked, why can't an analyst be a director, a vice president, an assistant GM, or a GM? And uh, a lot of people got pulled into this discussion. Mike Fast then answered him and said, GMs and uh, GM and analyst are very different roles requiring very different skill sets, which is kind of the, the standard response. And then Chris Long answered that and said, that's the party line, but I disagree. Negotiation and management are relatively simple to learn compared to math. Uh, and then he said, the key components to being a good GM are intelligence and creativity, which analysts excel at by definition. Um, so he's saying that, that analysts would make really good GMs uh, and that being a good analyst is harder than being a good manager of people. Um, and someone, I think Colin pointed out that Keith Wollner is a, is a director with the Indians and, uh, Chris Long said something like, well, why isn't he an assistant GM then? He's been with them for a while. So, um, wondering what you think about this. It, I mean, it, it seems to me, and, and he's defining analyst, uh, you know, like someone brought up Andrew Friedman, who is sort of a financial analyst and obviously pays a lot of attention to numbers and all those things. And that's not really the type of analyst he's talking about. He's talking like hardcore stat guy, guy who's doing, I don't know, he said something like Friedman is not doing differential equations or something. Like he, like, you know, a team's primary stat guy. Uh, he's wondering why that person has not yet become a GM. And I guess um, people were citing examples of, of GMs in other sports who would qualify as as an analyst, according to him. Chris Long said that Daryl Morey could be called an analyst. Um, someone else said uh, Sam Hinkie, who, I mean, again, we're talking about other sports here, so we probably shouldn't, but uh, these are these are basketball GMs. Um, so that's happened in basketball, I guess. Uh, um Sorry, this might be a dumb question, but why isn't Paul DePodesta getting credit for this? Is it just because he came in an, in an era when analysis was not nearly as, as wonky as it is now? Uh, I don't know. I, no one brought him up. I guess that would have been a good would have been a good counterexample. I guess he would he would fit the definition. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, maybe. And it seems like he got kind of a a bad rap there. I mean, he got a kind of a a tough I mean he would he seemed to do a lot of things well and then uh, I guess kind of had a reputation for not being successful there and hasn't gotten another chance at it even though he was you know a young smart GM type who seemed like he would get another chance um I don't know whether people look at his his regime and and draw some sort of lesson from it and that's why 
there hasn't been a, a, a successor to that. I don't know. Um, but, uh, I mean, it, it seems to me like these are very different skill sets and that I don't know what the, what the incentive to making your, your head stat guy, your GM is other than just wanting to reward, you know, good work and, and, and attract good employees. Uh, if you can get that stat guy's guidance and input and advice in his role as stat person, um, then what's your incentive to elevate him, I guess, unless you think that 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 person is also your best possible person for interacting with the media, for for managing everyone else in the department, for sort of synthesizing the the input of everyone else in the front office. I mean, those are very different skill sets, it seems to me. And I don't know how many head quantitative analyst people would uh, would even want that job or or think they deserve that job. Do you have any thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't really, I'm, I'm thinking this through. I, this is a good topic. Um, I want, do you know, do you have a sort of an idea of where most GMs come from? I mean, if I had without, I'm just sort of very, very quickly in my head going down the list of the ones that I know. Mm -hmm. And it seems like they're, generally kind of like um they were ball players who topped out at a very low level mm -hmm. uh like much lower even than 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 managers did and, and instructors did and then went into some sort of uh scouting route or uh joined an organization and worked their way up but i i'm not i haven't gone through 30 teams like mm -hmm. where did huntington come from do you know where huntington came from uh, or cash where did cashman come from where are these guys from they a lot of them just sort of i mean cashman was a was a college player um and then he just kind of started as an intern and worked his way up over a period of years um i don't know if he really had a a specialty as a like a stat or scout but guy I, in no particular. i just mean like yeah i just mean what is his yeah, like, what? How did he get into baseball? So he was a he was a college player, and he worked as an intern. So that's yeah. that's the answer for him. Mm -hmm. uh, like, uh, do you know uh, Sabian? Do you know where Sabian came from? Uh, he was he was like a scouting guy with the Yankees, wasn't he originally? Um, I think maybe I'll, I can look it up. Uh, he was he was a scouting guy with the Yankees, so he probably was. Yeah, he probably played minor league ball or college ball or something and got into yeah, scouting, right? played college, yeah. I think that uh, Coletti, I think, and was And he the, was a the... college coach, apparently. Oh, oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. So then I think Coletti was like the PR guy for the Cubs is how he got his start. Yeah, that's a strange one. Uh, that's a strange one. Lunau worked as an engineer, management consultant, and technology entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Worked with McKinsey. That's interesting. I'm surprised there are not more McKinsey types. Because really, that's where I was going to... I mean, that's ultimately, I think, where I was going to land is that uh, if it, you, I guess the question is, how important is the GM's role in uh, in any of these individual departments? Um, how important is the GM in the scouting department? How important is the GM in the statistics uh, branch? Uh, 
and, or is it mainly uh, is his role mainly as a manager and as a person who's able to you know get these organizations working together, have creative solutions, uh, have different ways of thinking of things, having communication between departments, making sure that you know that you don't have any sociopaths, making sure that you know somebody can say the right things to the media. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, you would think that the skill set would be quite a bit different than both uh, both routes, both the scouting guy who worked his way up and the, the quant guy who worked his way up. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you had to choose between the quant and the scout, uh, you probably would choose the scout just because he's got more, he, he's got sort of more, I would say a more, uh, uh, like a, a, a baseball fluency that probably uh, uh, reaches all corners of the team in a way that a quant might not, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he basically knows, uh, you know, he, I, I think he knows if he's been around the game, if he's been in the game, if he's played, if he's done all these things, he probably has some more awareness of, you know, what the roving catching instructor does and, mm-hmm. um, you know, how the, uh, umpires talk and, you know, every little detail that it takes a long time to get this sort of cultural fluency and, it, you know, I don't know, I, I don't know that I wouldn't hold it against a guy who joined a front office for the first time when he was in his 30s um, as uh, as an as an analyst. I mean, I certainly don't know any of those things. And that's I think that's probably an undervalued uh, 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 kind of flaw in, in the job that that maybe not everybody would have. So. I don't know if that's an unfair thing to say, mm-hmm. uh, but I mean, certainly a big part of of baseball, of running a baseball team, seems to me, based on what we see on the field, I would think it would carry over somewhat into the uh, front office, is just being able to kind of play the part. There's a lot of unwritten stuff. There's a lot of culture. There's a lot of tradition, and you want somebody who's going to have credibility in those facets not because those things are necessarily important but because you don't want to you don't want to blow your credibility on small things that don't matter so you got to sort of cover the small stuff first like i remember one time i wrote a concert review uh for the orange county register and i made some like super duper duper outlandish claim about how some song was the best single since like the zombies or something like that and uh the editor's like, yeah, well, we can't put this in. I'm like, why not? It's a, it's a, it's a music review. It's my opinion. And he goes, yeah, well, if you put this in, then everybody's going to quit reading like right away. And this is a dumb place to have people quit reading. I mean, you can say it's a great song, but you don't want to lose them over something that you don't even really care that much about. And so I feel like having a guy who's likely to lose a portion of the, of the organization over this sort of fairly small stuff, uh, might be, I don't know. It seems like it might be a, a bad choice. On the other hand, I, the, I think that the point that uh, a creative person who you've hired to be creative and you've hired because they have a rational, logical mind that's able to solve problems in ways that other people haven't been able to solve it, that's a pretty impressive and powerful force. Mm-hmm. And you do want to give that person uh, as much um, you know, as much responsibility as possible. And that means promoting aggressively and giving more responsibility. And I don't think that this, I think that Chris's position will probably uh, be absorbed somewhat. My guess is that in a decade, this conversation would not be happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that could that could be part of it because I, I mean, it's only been in the last decade or so that that every team has had uh, a stat person. So 
you could certainly see, um, I mean, as that becomes more established, uh, that that would become more accepted, that, that a stat person could could become anything in a front office. And I think he responded to that. Uh, he tweeted something about how teams can can promote people as, as quickly as they want to promote people. Like the Astros hired a, a 27-year-old assistant GM last year. Um, so they don't necessarily have to wait for there to be a, a really long track record of this sort of thing. If they think that someone is deserving, they could just put that person on the fast track and and make them a, a manager of other people immediately uh, without really the precedent for it. But, um, but that does seem like a factor. I, I guess it's just, I don't know. I, I mean, the, he says the key components to being a good GM are intelligence and creativity. Um, and I wonder whether that's the case. I, I mean, as long as you have... As long as you have, I mean, obviously you need some level of intelligence, but uh, as long as you have someone or someones under you who are intelligent and creative, um, if your skills are talking to the media and developing relationships with other general managers that can facilitate trades and that sort of thing and, and keeping your employees happy and having an open mind so that you're receptive to other people's creativity, even if all of the creative ideas aren't coming directly from you, uh, that seems like it would work well too. And, and to be a, to be a full-time, I mean, to be a, a really hardcore analyst, you have to have, I mean, you know, to get one of those jobs these days, you have to have uh, a master's in everything. I mean, mm-hmm math and computer science and all of these things. Uh, so that doesn't leave a lot of time for, for, I guess for, for the other things that you're saying and kind of having that background and being able to relate to the, the maximum number of people in your organization. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't get the sense I might be wrong, but I don't get the sense that the quants in any other industry get promoted to CEO. They, if they are entrepreneur, if they're in an, if they're in an industry that, has entrepreneurship, they might be the CEO by virtue of you know starting their own company and having it be wildly successful. Which uh-huh. I think set I think that both says something about the value of the engineer essentially, which is massive, but also maybe a sort of a, a bias that transcends all industries against promoting that guy to the people position. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I mean, there's really there's some I guess disincentive for a team not to promote a brilliant analyst because if you make a brilliant analyst your GM then then that person probably doesn't have time to do his brilliant analysis anymore right I mean that's a full-time job uh, crunching the numbers as a as a head stat person for a team that doesn't seem like something you could do as effectively if you have all the many other demands on your time that it, that a GM has. You'd say that about anybody, though. Anybody who gets promoted to GM is going to leave their previous position, and my suspicion is that most GMs are in their previous position were making more than the average analyst is for a team right now. So yeah. uh, if they valued that guy any less, they probably wouldn't pay him so much. I wonder. I I guess it does. I guess it kind of conflicts with that. But I was wondering if maybe the the skill set is more specialized for a. A stat person where it would be harder to replace 
that position. Could be. I mean, I mean the skill set is more specialized. Yeah, I mean, there's certain. Well, maybe it's not. I don't know. Well, I don't know. There are a lot more people who have played. Well, <laughs> I don't know. Are there more people who have played baseball in college or professionally and learned some stuff about scouting than there are people who know a lot about baseball and have high level math, analytical, quantitative uh, skills? The question is whether the analysts need to be baseball fans. I, I think at this point right now, my impression is that all the analysts come from a, a baseball-loving background. Mm-hmm. And I think that what we'll probably see before too long is that that won't happen anymore, that we'll start to see if teams really want to invest in this stuff, they'll start hiring guys who are not baseball writers, you know, who are not baseball fans who did not apply necessarily because it's baseball. Um, the, uh, geez, I'm forgetting his name, but there's this extremely famous basketball better who, um, has vulgaris. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So his guy, the, the quant that he hired to make him all his money is not a basketball guy. He just does the math and, uh, you know, he does this extremely high level math for him, but, um, the basketball knowledge is sort of not as important to him. It's the math knowledge that's important. And so it'll be interesting to see whether that stays the same as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Way out of way out of my league, by the <laughs> way, in this conversation. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, that's interesting. I wonder, because there was a, there's a conversation on one of the last couple uh, Randy Gisarely and Joshian podcasts about managers and how in other sports you don't have to have playing experience to be a manager that baseball is the only one where almost without exception you have to have been a professional player to get that job um i wonder whether baseball will will be behind the curve in the same way with gms if there are a couple examples of of basketball quant types who are gms uh but none in baseball i don't know it doesn't seem like there's as much of a disconnect there because certainly front offices are are enthusiastic about employing those sorts of people uh neil huntington played college ball and four years later he was the assistant director of player development for the expos so he Mm -hmm. went in the player development track dayton moore played college ball then coached college ball then went into scouting so Mm -hmm. those are two that i looked up just now yeah there there is a perception that you don't have to have played anymore to be a gm but you have to you you almost have to have played somewhere it seems yeah, like you don't have yeah. to have been good you don't have to have made the majors maybe not even the minors but you have college to have, though yeah you gotta have college ball pretty much yeah unless you're i mean unless you're there's there's probably there's always going to be a few exceptions did rick evans play rick evans rick hahn i don't know um well did did lou now play i don't think Luna played yeah I don't know if Luna played Luna looks like a player his his Wikipedia page doesn't mention any any playing experience yeah Hans doesn't but it's short this is this is clearly the shortest Wikipedia page (laughs) for a GM (laughs) clearly this is uh this his entire page is shorter than Sestouli's uh (laughs) intro yeah four paragraphs and Two of, those Two of them are one sentence. One of them ends in a sentence. sentence. One ends in a comma. <laughs> wow. The what? first sentence ends in a comma. It's not even a sentence. <laughs> it's three paragraphs with four paragraph breaks. Yeah, someone needs to, to update that. 
<laughs> All right. Jeez, so, uh, Ben, goodness gracious. We're already pushing a half hour. <laughs> well, we did a short one yesterday. After- All right, mine's going to be mine's gonna be three minutes, okay? Sure. So I was asked a question uh, the other day about Mike Trout by a, like in a Q&A by an Angels blogger, and it, it uh, brought up the fact that, you know, after – after Trout had the best year ever for a 20-year-old, depending on your war metric, he's on pace this year to, to, to maybe have the best season ever for a 21-year-old, depending on your, your war metric. And so I started wondering, what sort of odds would you need in order to bet against him making the Hall of Fame at this point? Or I guess another way of saying it is, what sort of odds would you need to bet on him making the Hall of Fame at this point? And so... I uh, I just want to I want you to I want to ask you about a few players and I want you to just give me your percentage likelihood mm-hmm. that that player makes the Hall of Fame and to give you a little bit of context at any given point there seems to be throughout history about thirteen to twenty one players under the age of thirty playing at any given time who will make the Hall of Fame mm-hmm. so about you know like not quite two per each age year, but just about that, okay? okay? So it's a not a small number of Hall of Famers that we're watching right now, but I always like the idea of being able to identify the Hall of Famer very early and to enjoy their career, and I don't feel like we necessarily always get to do that because we're there's so much um, uncertainty about it. Like Dylan Bundy might be a Hall of Famer, but we're going to spend the first couple years wondering, you know, is Dylan Bundy going to pan out? Is Dylan Bundy going to be good this this week for my fantasy team is he gonna help the Orioles are they gonna trade him uh when he gets close to free agency you know we, we get so focused in the day-to-day but um Trout has made it easy because mm-hmm. I, I feel like Trout has established very early on that we're watching a Hall of Fame career from scratch and we can just sit back and enjoy it we can watch 20 years of this knowing that this guy is going to be super famous forever and that, you know, 80 years from now or 60 years from now, we can tell people Mike Trout stories and they'll know who Mike Trout is. And that's a really good thing. That's a great thing. So, uh, so I want to, I, I just identify a couple guys, uh, who, uh, or, or figure out just how likely we think it is based on what they've done so far. So Mike Trout, what are the odds Mike Trout makes the hall of fame? Uh, I guess I'll say, <laughs> um, 40? Oh my word, that's so low. Goodness gracious. I mean, I'd say 80. I'd say a 80. solid 80. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, he's he's what 8 years away from even qualifying for for making the Hall of Fame. It's just I mean, the 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 talent is there. I mean, he's playing at a Hall of Fame level right now certainly, but I mean, you said there are whatever 15 to 20 Hall of Famers under 30, but he's he's Far, far away from thirty. If if a guy is looks like a potential Hall of Famer at twenty nine, he's he has a lot of that Hall of Fame production under his belt already. Whereas Trout just has a season and a half of that. Yeah, I know. But you remember that Starlin Castro unfiltered that I did about yeah, how if you right. I mean, if if all you knew about Trout, if you knew nothing about him except for how many plate appearances he had at this age, you did not know how good they were. Or what his, you know, whether he was a good prospect or what position he plays or what his skill set is. If all you knew was how many plate appearances he had, you'd be able to say with some some confidence that he'd have like a thirty or forty percent chance just on that, because uh-huh. not many guys have eleven hundred plate appearances by the time they're, you know, their age twenty one season. So you don't give him any extra credit for being the best player in baseball for two years in a row at this age. 
yeah, sure. Um, and arguably having like an like an ex, like a, a very diverse skill set that I, I think you could debate which skill sets are going to age best at this age. But mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's, people seem to like guys with diverse skill sets and with speed and athleticism, and he's got that. So, gosh, uh, I mean, eighty just. Do you realize he's already he's already I think nineteenth in career war for angels. <laughs> um, eighty just sounds it's too high. Forty is absurd. If you want to, I mean, I would I will take your money, Ben. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're right. I I had forgotten about the thing that you'd written about Castro. Uh, okay, well, I'll say in light of that. Uh, if just the plate appearances alone makes him 30 to 40, um, then I guess how good the plate appearances have been, uh, I'll put him at like 60. Okay, fair enough. Split the difference. All right. Uh, Starlin Castro. Uh-huh. Um, <sighs> uh, <laughs> t- t- 25. Oh, see, now I go way low on him now. I'm, I'm off the bit. Because of this I, season. I, because yeah, I mean, he just hasn't. To me, he hasn't really developed into the into the player. So I I knock him down to four. You know, there's this uh, episode of The Simpsons where Homer's trying to lose weight, and it shows the scale, and the scale keeps like you know the scale goes up to a number, and he goes ah, and then it goes down to a number, and he goes woohoo, and then it goes up, and because you know it's cause, you know how scales are. Mm-hmm. This is like you. You say so many sounds <laughs> before you answer that I'm guessing like what's he gonna? Oh, he's gonna say three. He's gonna say three. <laughs> but then you don't say three. Then you change it to like. And I go, he's going to say 75. <laughs> uh, all right. So uh, I say 4% for Castro. Wow. What would you uh, have said before this season? 20, 20, 20, 23. Man. So it changes that much in three months? <laughs> it does in this case, yeah. Okay. Not a, not a Castro guy anymore. Not a Castro guy. But also, I mean, I think that it's a significant, it's a significant thing to be hitting 230. Yeah. It's significant. Yes, <laughs> you're right. Okay, who's next? Buster Posey. Uh, okay, Buster Posey. Just because we've already seen him have one Starlin Castro. Serious oh my gosh! Hang on. Out of 654 players who are under 30 this year, Starlin Castro has the worst WAR on Baseball Reference. He's 654th. He's at negative 1.4 WAR. It's not very cool. He has standing. a 600. He has a 600 OPS plus, uh, a 594 OPS. Uh, Posey, I'll say 45. 45. Yeah, I mean he's he's de- I there are he is a I think he is probably ahead of the median Hall of Famer at this stage in his career. Uh, but the catcher thing worries me, so I wouldn't. Uh, yeah, 45 seems slightly high to me, but. Like just because he's a catcher, um, mm-hmm. so I I like his I like his his potential to 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 move to another position. I think he has a good skill set to move to another position at a later point. But uh, yeah, I'd go like thirty six, thirty seven, no thirty seven. Okay. Uh, all right, uh, Steven Strasburg. <clears throat> uh, t- Twenty five. I'll say like fourteen. Yeah. Okay. Clayton Kershaw. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, 
35? <laughs> uh, you have him 35 and Strasburg 25? Yep. They're like the same age. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like this game at all. I'll say I'll say 37 for for Kershaw. Okay. Uh, That seems high. I think these I think these pitching ones are are too high. We're too high on these pitching ones. Uh, Matt Harvey. Uh, Ten. Okay. I'll say I'll say ten. I don't know how you have Strasburg so much higher than Harvey. (laughs) But oh, well, no, maybe I do. Yeah, yeah, actually, I think that's fair. That's fair. That's a. It is reasonable to have Strasburg higher than Harvey. It's also reasonable not to. I I don't have a problem with that. Okay. Uh, Dustin Pedroia. Hmm. It's uh, <coughs> an interesting one because he's been around for a while. How how close is he like now? What, what's his career? Um, well, I'm a, I'm on reference, so I can uh-huh. tell you that on reference he has 36 WAR, and you need about yeah, 60, like half, 60, halfway there. 60, yeah, 62 gets you basically to the Alomar Biggio point. And he is almost 30. Um, I guess I would say, and he's he has the MVP and stuff. Uh, I guess I guess I'd say I'm trying to remember what I said about other guys because all of these, even if they sound okay in isolation, sound right, awful in comparison up. to everyone else. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess if I gave Posey 45, I had to give Pedroia 45 at least. I'll give him give him a 50. Okay, and uh, I'll give uh, Pedroia 50. Uh, I'll give Pedroia 50, 51. Okay. Uh, one dollar. Uh, and then okay, last one, last one. Uh, well, yeah, last one. Jose Iglesias. <laughs> you uh, laugh, but I mean, you know, o- Omar Omar might get there, and he won't get there. If he gets there, no, he won't get there. You don't think Omar is going to get there? You, don't, I mean, I don't. No. What do you? Probably not. But I, can't I, mean, I don't know. You, I could see. I mean, there's going to be a push. There's going to be a push. Yeah, I guess so. Um, Jose Iglesias, uh, point, uh, point oh five. Okay, so one in one in five thousand. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'll say one in thirty-seven hundred. Okay. All right. <laughs> pretty, That's the show. Pretty high on Jose Iglesias. Are we? That's like uh, you are. Oh, I am. Yeah, relative to you. I think I'm probably too high on him too. All right. Podcast out. Okay. Uh, is that a is that a relevant reference? Yeah. Sure. Is that is that timely? <laughs> sure. Uh, tomorrow is the email show. That's our last show of the week. So please send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Last time I checked, I think we could still use some. So we'll be back tomorrow.